going on to your songwriting, I was going to ask you about the, the band you, you were in with Tony, which he did mention. You, I guess you, you split up and then you went solo to do your stuff? Did that ever happen? Well, when I left school, um, Tony had a band called The Sabres. It was, um, he thinks I was in a band called The Swinging Bells, but I wasn't. You my did mem- say that. My memory's better than his. Okay. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fine. That's good. Um, it, it was Tony Blackburn and The Sabres, and I was only there for a few months. It was just like right after I left school. And uh, we did, I don't know how many gigs we did, but he had a regular gig at the uh, Bournemouth Pavilion. Okay. Uh, Tuesday night was Big Beat Night. Yeah. And we were the opening act on Big Beat Night, and the, um, the house band, the regular, was uh, Zoot Money. It was before the big rock band, the, the band in those days was called The Sands Combo. Yeah. And um, they evolved into the big rock band, but um, you know, so it was Zoot Money and the, the Sands Combo, and then Tony Blackburn and the Sabres, and it was you know every Tuesday night. But I wasn't in it for very long, and then after that, I joined about six other. They were called beat groups in those days, okay. you know. So I was in the G Men, and I was in the Master Sounds, and I was in the Trappers, and uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, local Bournemouth bands, you know. Yeah. I did about did that for about two years from seventeen to nineteen. Yeah. And then I seemed to be the only person in Bournemouth that had heard of Bob Dylan and then to me it was a big deal. And I thought, well, maybe there's something to this folk business, I'd better go to London because in Bournemouth nobody knew. And um I just went up to London and I auditioned for a a regular Friday night gig at a at a coffee bar called Bunges and uh, for some unknown reason I got it. And I spent the next two and a half years there. <laughs> and then and gradually from there I spread out to the other folk clubs in London and um, eventually I spread out to you know folk clubs around the country. I had an interesting tale told me the other day of the time that the guy that owned the record shop which you were good friends with... Uh, no, Jan Creeman. Jan Creeman. Yeah. That you, you, you got in to play John Lennon's guitar um, yeah, we did. as security. Uh, is, is that a true story? Yes, it is a true story. We... Um, the, the Beatles played a week in Bournemouth and they were doing two shows a night at, I think, the Gaumont Cinema. And we went to the very first show and um, he said, we've got to meet them, you know, like, and because uh, there was a gap between the first show and the second show. I said, well, we, we can't meet them. I mean, even though, I mean, it's not like today. I mean, today, if you tried to meet Justin Timberlake, you'd go through 16 layers of security. Yeah. But there was a police cordon yeah. um, and there were maybe 2,000 screaming, you know, yeah. kids, us, yeah. <laughs> outside. <laughs> And um, we went to see the manager of the theatre and um, he said in a very authoritative voice, we've come down from London and we work for Rickenbacker Guitars and my client, John Lennon, wants to see me to discuss business matters and I can't get through your barricade because of all the screaming kids. He's 16 and he's saying this, right? <laughs> I'm 17. <laughs> and the manager was so harassed that he phoned down the... Um, security and the next thing I know we're walking through the police cordon and we're being escorted to their dressing room and Lennon comes out and I think he was bored I mean you would be bored he's done a show and he's got nothing to do he's just sitting on his own in the dressing room and I I was smart I I wanted to get his attention and show him that we weren't crazy and I knew he didn't like the deal that Brian Epstein had done with Vox amplifiers because you know, he always played through a Fender. Yeah. And he loved it. I knew he loved his Fender amplifier and I knew he didn't like the box. So I, I, I said something really quickly like, uh, you know, why, don't, why aren't you using your Fender amp? And, and he said, bloody Brian. Because <laughs> Brian Epstein had done mm. this deal with Vox. Yeah, and, yeah. and then we were off and running. And the next thing I know, he gets the old 
like Rickenbacker and then I, I'm puts around my shoulders and I'm playing Chuck Berry rest to John Lennon. I mean, this is the way. <laughs> doesn't, get, doesn't get better than that. That was pretty cool. Yeah. Of course, in these days, I would have a, a, a selfie to, um, to yeah, show sure. everyone, but yeah. of course, in those days, no one had yeah, a camera. It's up there now. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. But I have a witness. Johnny was there. Born in Glasgow, but you were brought up in Wimborne. Yeah. Uh, in the forest, and how, how, how many years did you stay in, in the New Forest area? Um, well, until I went to, to London, right. so 19. Yeah, and you were into music, obviously at that time, you, you joined a band. and Yeah, well, from 17 to 19, I played in local bands, I mean, I had yeah. about six of them. Yeah. You, your first guitar and from Andy Summers? No, but, I, I mean, I know it says that, but it wasn't yeah. my first guitar, it was okay. probably fourth or fifth one. But you had a guitar from Andy I Summers. did buy a guitar from Andy, yeah, yeah, it was a Gibson... 175, I think. Okay. Because uh, Andy was into jazz, and yeah. he, he at the time he wanted to be Wes Montgomery, and so uh, he mm-hmm. wasn't playing rock and roll at all. And I thought, well, if uh, you know Andy Summers is a great guitar player, so if I buy his guitar, maybe you somebody will play like him. Yeah, <laughs> it didn't work. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you got your own style, and, and uh, that, that stays with that. Your influences for that. Where do you draw upon these great stories of yours, and that you put to song? Well, um, I. I, I'm, I think I'm very lucky in the sense that most people who write songs do it from the point of view of music. Yeah. Um, and I love music, but I, I'm equally like literature, history, movies, um, and biographies, and I, they're all equally important to me. So what I've basically done is um, just put all of these things into a bucket and stirred. So you have songs that really don't sound to me like anyone else's. You've got the historical things, you know, roads to Moscow or trains or whatever. And uh, I don't hear anyone else writing that because I think a lot of people write songs, what, with a drum machine or a computer or... And they're thinking in terms of chord orders and they're thinking in terms of, you know, harmonies and they're thinking in terms of production. of, you know, where was Heinz Guderian in, um, you know, like in 1941, you know, like, where did he go, you know, where he was outside Brest-Litovsk, you know, like, what was the date, you know. So my approach to the song is completely different, but I, I'm always looking for content. Uh, pop music is 99% style, so it's what pair of trousers are you wearing, you know, it's do you have the latest haircut, it's do you have... You know, it, are you doing rap at the time that that's popular? Are you doing grunge? Are you doing metal? Are you doing country and western? All of this is style. Sure. Content. So, so style, if I said to you, oh baby, I love you so, or I said to you, oh baby, you've left me and I'm, I'm so sad, um, I could do it as rap, I could do it as pop, I could do it as country, I could even do it as opera, I mean, I could do it as anything. But it's still, the content is the same thing. Sure. It's baby, you've left me, or baby, I love you so. Um, now, content um, is if you're writing about the development of the um, Leningrad-Moscow canal system in the 1930s, that is content. <laughs> that is amazing. Uh, 
And so I, I come from the point of view of I, I value content more than style. And you write different lyrics for songs? Yeah. Yeah, I remember you saying that on stage. Yeah, I mean, sometimes um, three or four. Wow. Yeah. And do you keep... For instance, um, Year of the Cat. Yeah. Do you uh, the alternative lyrics? Uh, is that still kept away, hidden somewhere? I've got some. Album? I've got some. I haven't got that. I mean, the, the, the yeah. Year of the Cat was foot of the stage originally. And okay. I also wrote a parody called Horse of the Year about Princess Anne, all, all to the same backing track. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, there, there might have been a, another one or two, but it, it's. I do write lots of different sets of lyrics. Sometimes, if if I can't get it right, um, or. If, if there are four verses in a song, I often write 12 uh, and then try and pick the best ones or even the best lines. Okay. And, the, and, the, and this is exactly the same thing. If you're in a blues band, right? Mm -hmm. What they do is the, the band put down the backing track and the guitar player goes out and he'll play 25 different solos, right? And then they come in and they say, you know, which is the best one? I'm doing exactly the same thing with lyrics. I'm writing multiple sets of lyrics for songs. And then, in the way that you say, oh, th this guitar solo sounds great, uh, I, I say, well, that verse sounds good, and verse nine sounds good, and the first half of verse three. <laughs> put them together that way. Yeah, yeah. put them together that way. Yeah. So it's, it's my version of improvisation. I, I think of them as mini-movies. I mean, if you listen to The Last Day of June, 1939, or Old Admirals, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a movie. It's, it's like a, it's a biography of Lord Fisher, but at the same time, it could it could be straight off the History Channel, you know what I mean? It's like uh, so they're almost to me. That's almost like a movie. I'm watching. I'm watching the movie in my mind while I'm singing the song. I'm surprised that that uh, film directors haven't come in and used your music more mm. in, in some of the film soundtracks. Are, are you surprised at that? No, uh, I, I'm not because I understand how things work commercially. Okay. Which is that if you're especially if you're making a major motion picture, you budget it. Um, according to you know all the various income sources that you can get, um, and one of them, of course, is a soundtrack. You know, like a, if you can get Paul McCartney to um, do the soundtrack to a James Bond film, you get, you had an extra three or four million dollars. Yeah, yeah, yeah I understand. So that. if you get yeah. me to do it, you're not going to make anything. So okay. it's a, it's purely commercial. I don't take it personally. Yeah. yeah. Going uh, to the Les Cousins Folk Club, uh, you played in the '60s. Yeah. All the artists that you played with, uh, what were those times like? Were they Fun time, I, I was saying the other day on stage that um, all of those people, um, for a while, well, I can name them. Yeah, more. Van Morrison. Uh, well, Van Morrison had a, a residency there. Yeah. Since he played every Wednesday, I think it was. Okay. Bert Chance, John Rambo, yeah. Roy Harper, Ralph McTell. Um, yeah, I mean, all the people you've ever heard of played at the Cousins, and yeah. um, it was it was great. I mean, it was for the while. For a while, I was the compad there. So oh, I, yeah. I was, okay. yeah, it was. Um, yeah. So I got to. Literally put all these people on stage, Paul Simon, you know, yeah. and um, I, I, it was a great time. I look back on it very fondly. And you shared a flat course with Paul Simon. Paul I did. Yeah. So yeah. Um, how did that work out? Good for me. I mean, I yeah. learned how to write songs because you know, <laughs> he was in the next room. I heard him doing it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Glastonbury Festival, first ever in 1970. Yeah. Would you like to be back there next year? Um, I should be there for the 50th. I, I did Good. the first one, and I did. 25 and 40 and I don't know if there's anyone alive apart from me from the first one so if they, if they have their head screwed on they should book me but we don't know we'll find out yeah yeah sure you worked with Yoko for a while pre-lunch pre worked with Yoko every week for about six months so yeah. sometimes twice a week she came around I had a tape recorder and I could play a modal D and the Yoko liked that and so she would you know sing over the top and I, I would do Indian ragas in the background okay we recorded 
I don't know, five hours of it at one point, you know, and uh, when she met John Lennon, I deleted it all because I, I didn't have the money to buy new tapes, so I needed the tape. <laughs> but you regret that now. It'd be interesting to yeah. listen back to it. Yeah, right? sure. Yeah. Pity that you weren't the person that introduced Yoko to John. That, what a story that would have made. No, but I met them both before they met each other, okay. which is kind of yeah. fun. Yoko I knew really well. Yeah. I mean, we used to go out to dinner all the time, and mm -hmm. uh, she had a husband called Tony Cox, who um, I think eventually ran away with Yoko's daughter. It was a, a tragedy, you know. Or, or, yeah, yeah, took her off to live in a commune somewhere, and then it took Yoko, I think, about 12 years to, to even find her. Yeah. Wow, mm. wow. 1973 past, present, and future album. 1976, The Year of the Cat, and of course, the follow up to that was Time Passages. Uh -huh. The greatest song that you think that, um, or most successful song, almost love song of your, your fans out there. I, I couldn't tell you. I mean, uh, the, the song that everyone knows is this Year of the Cat. Obviously. Yeah, the time passages, a lot of people say that that's their favourite. So many people say, that, which was surprising because you think the Year of the Cat, that's one of the charts so much. Um, and I think uh, time passages should have had a bigger chart uh, success than what it did. Well, neither of them were hits in England. They were hits no, every, everywhere else in the world. Yeah, that's right. Doesn't bother me. I have. I, they were both top ten in America. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where the money is. <laughs> I'll, I'll take yeah, that. Yeah, you know. yeah, yeah, exactly. Richard Thompson, Rick Wakeman, Tori Amos, the name but a few. Is there anyone that you, you haven't worked with that you'd like to have worked with? In um, some way? I, it, because, he, because he treads almost on my territory with the historical things, and also because I love his guitar playing, probably Mark Knopfler, I would think. Yeah, okay. I, I think I could... Um, I, I like the way that he weaves his historical things together, and... Uh, I love the way he plays the guitar, so yeah. I think I could put something together, you know, that, that, that would be um, would be pretty good with Martin Lockwood. Yeah. I've never met him, so I don't like that. No, no, well, you, you never know, never say never. And then what are your plans for next year? I'm doing a, the Moody Blues have a cruise every year, and okay. uh, so we're doing that. There's about, four, about oh, I know, 20 or 30 different rock bands on, the Zombies do it every year, yes. mm -hmm. a whole lot of bands like that. So I'm doing that, and um, that just lots of gigs. You know, I don't know when, when I started this. My my mother and my my school school teachers, because uh, they give you um, before you leave school, they take you and they say, you know, they give you advice with what you do with your life, and they say, what did you want to do? And I said, I want to play the guitar and you know, basically play rock and roll. And they said, oh, my father, that's only going to lots of fat. It will only last um, six six months. And I thought. I got to get out there. If I've only got six months, I got to make the most of it. Yeah. 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 Well, of course, we know it didn't last six months. Fifty-five years later, I'm still doing it. But fifty-four, whatever it is. What makes this this absolutely wonderful to me is when they said this. I left school at the end of 1962. Probably within a, with a matter of days of them telling me that rock and roll was finished, uh, an obscure band from Liverpool released its first single, and they were called the Beatles. So their timing was absolutely insane. Yeah. They could not have been more wrong. I mean, they were 180 degrees wrong in every single way possible. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought, what I learned from that is never give advice to your children. <laughs> 
Well, it was nice we can. I mean, uh, BB King was doing 300 shows a year at the age of 85, so... Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, you're trying to do that many, do you? I, I know. I, no, could know, but he had about 50 other general children, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, don't, don't quote me on that, because I don't. <laughs> no, I'm, no. Just, I'm just making that up. Yeah, yeah. But, um, no, I mean, I think that it's weird, because the, the people who are, you know, from my generation, who are still... Ralph is still doing this. You know, Richard Thompson is still doing this. You know? mm-hmm. So the ones that are still standing are out there playing gigs all the time. So. I think there's something in that and the ones that don't that, that fade away and that don't do much Andy Fairweather Low saw him the other day you know and, he, and he's still sounding the same as what he did all yeah. those years ago so yeah. it's just um, Amen Corner I see yeah. 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 I saw Amen Corner with uh, Jimi Hendrix and the Pink Floyd there was a, wow. there's, there's a combination yeah. singer-songwriter Al Stewart it's been a pleasure talking with you no but I can talk about this stuff everyone Strolling